Everybody, good evening and welcome to the Italian Radio Hour. Io sono Viviana e vorrei dare il benvenuto ai nostri ascoltatori da tutto il mondo. Grazie per essere con noi anche oggi mentre continuiamo il nostro viaggio per l'Italia e la cultura italiana. Today we'll have a very interesting conversation with Valentina Gritti, who is the director of the Slow Food Youth Network and will specifically focus on making good buying decisions, what goes into Again, enjoying good food and saving the planet at the same time. Ma prima, pubblicità. Do you want to learn, improve or master your Italian? Istituto Mondo Italiano can help. Located in the heart of Regent Square, Mondo Italiano offers small group classes and one-on-one private tutoring to help you learn Italian in no time. Visit us online at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Un caffè per favore. My first cup of coffee sets the tone for my entire day, and I get my coffee at La Prima Espresso. La Prima has been brewing Pittsburgh's best coffee for nearly 35 years. Try any of their in-house roasted varieties of beans from all over the world at home, or come and enjoy an espresso or a cappuccino at any of their locations, where their friendly baristas and familiar faces will make you feel at home. Because a trip to La Prima is like a little trip to Italy, only closer to home. Well, now we're ready to listen to our interview with Valentina Gritti from the Slow Food Youth Network. Enjoy. Well, welcome uh, back to the Italian Radio Hour. And uh, today we have a very interesting and young guest with us, Valentina Gritti, who is with the organization Slow Food, the Youth Network Movement. Um, and uh, I believe the acronym goes uh, by SPIN. So if you hear me uh, using a SPIN, it will be Slow Food Youth Network. And uh, obviously, being Italian, uh, f- uh, food is always uh, at the core of our essence. So the Slow Food Movement, um, I wanted to have Valentina with us today to tell us a little bit about what is really slow food, because associating slow food with just eating slow, um, I think it does the movement a great disservice. Um, Valentina, I know that there was a specific... Welcome to the show, first of all. Benvenuta. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Um, so the, I'm from Rome, so there is a little connection between slow food and Rome. But there was a specific event, a specific incident um, that kind of triggered uh, the creation of the slow food movement. Um, can you tell us a little bit what happened back in the day? <laughs> yes, of course. So everything started as a reaction against fast food because in Rome, uh, exactly, there was the the opening of a McDonald's like in a central uh, square of Rome, and then as a reaction, like as good Italians, we said like, okay, no, this cannot happen. We have to preserve like our own uh, food culture, uh, our um, uh, our own product, and so. Um, yeah, at the very beginning, slow food started as a sort of political movement and reaction against uh, globalization of food and food as a community, co- uh, commodity. And McDonald's, in that sense, represented uh, this world of um, yeah, food commodity 
So Carlo Petrilliso is the, the the founder of the organization, who was also very active. Just I think it's back in the maybe the generation of uh, you know the the years of the '69 and so forth. So um, it was indeed specifically something against a brand or a food manufacturer or another. But the fact that we really needed to step back and. Uh, um, and really protect not we're not just talking about Italian food. The slow food movement is um a, a global movement that, that touches many different aspects of the food production, including the um starting from the, the farmers, right? So yeah. um, tell me a little bit about when you think about the slow food um, organization, what do you what do you think? And what what are the themes? What are all the aspects of this global organization that someone should think of when we talk about slow food? Yeah, yeah so exactly. It started as an Italian movement, but now it's a worldwide a movement, a worldwide organization, and uh, we are working on three different pillars. So um, on uh, biodiversity preservation, uh, on advocacy and education in the field of food. And the goal of the movement is to achieve a food system where everyone has access to good, clean and fair food, which means good in the sense that tastes good and of good quality, clean in a sense that it's uh, produced in a sustainable way with the organic agriculture, agroecological practices and fair because it's a fair towards the producers, but also towards the consumers. So let's say that we act uh, with, with this goal and we divide uh, our project um, following the three pillars that I mentioned. For example, uh, in the case of biodiversity preservation, uh, we have two big projects, which are called the Arc of Taste and the Presidia project. And the objective is really to um, to safeguard some uh, very typical varieties uh, of uh, food products and also uh, special and traditional foods. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the Arc of Taste is a sort of catalogue of these foods mm-hmm. um, made by our local communities. And the procedures are the network of producers of this food. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's important to say that uh, our movement is, is based on local communities. So we're really, really a grassroots movement and the communities they are very diverse so they are uh, volunteers that are involved in the food system like uh, from food producers to uh, cooks to activists uh, students and um, yeah everyone that is also interested in food can just join the movement and um, the local communities they have a specific objectives that they choose to improve their local food system. And then us, as like a global office, we support them in uh, in achieving their goals. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about communities and also <clears throat> local uh, foods, we're talking about foods from all over the world. Again, this is, um, uh, they might be representing the African continent, they might be Europe, or they might be coming from 
Um, so again, this is not just something that touches the Italian peninsula. This is indeed mm. something that protects the food and uh, again, the biodiversity all over, all over the world. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really international movement and communities are really based in all the continents. And uh, also within the bigger uh, slow food movement, we have different thematic networks. For example, the slow food youth network is part of this thematic network, but then we have like the, the indigenous Terra Madre network, the migrant network, slow fish network, and there are communities that belong to these other networks within slow food uh, all over the world to really preserve their, their local food culture and their food sovereignty. So uh, as far as uh, a, a, an opportunity, a kind of a global event for these also um, producers to come to together, and then I'm sure there is a variety of workshops, um, educational workshops, is this beautiful event that takes place in uh, in Torino, um, I think every every other year. Uh, the every event time. is called uh, Terra, Terra Madre. And uh, were you able to attend this year? Can you tell us uh, everything from what it looks like, what it feels like, uh, what have you seen, what have you learned? Yes, definitely. So it's uh, yeah, it's really a, a very very nice event, and you can really see all the different colors of food of the people that made the network of of slow food because we uh, there are a lot of delegates from all over the world that come to the event. And then, of course, you also have visitors that can that are just uh, visiting, tasting, and learning from these, uh, these uh, communities. And yeah, this year, I was in charge of the activities of the Slow Food Youth Network at Terra Madre. So, of course, I was there, and we were in the activism square because we really want uh, to show that young people want to take action and they really want to, to change uh, the food systems. And uh, how it looked like. Uh, so every edition is different. Um, this year, it was really divided um, in, uh, in the three pillars that I mentioned before. So uh, biodiversity, education, uh, and activism. And then there were uh, different uh, arenas and conference rooms in which you could really go uh, deeper into topics and thematics. And, uh, and of course, also a, a food market where you can try a lot of uh, local and international uh, food products. Um, and then there are different um, workshops also in which you can, uh, uh, for example, learn how to, uh, to make compost or uh, different types of gardening, but also how to do fermentation and how to uh, taste coffee, for instance, uh, and, and much more. So you can, you can go there, connect, uh, learn, eat, have fun. It's really um, uh, there are a lot of uh, different things that you can do. So uh, do you remember of food or any country that you have never seen this before? I don't know what it is. It's vegetable. It's uh, or something that stuck uh, in that you hadn't seen before. I mean, a full market near the uh, train station. And uh, sometimes there are also vegetables that, I mean, there are 
greens, let's put it that way, and um, that I wouldn't know how to cook. I don't know if there are vegetables or fruits. So I actually like to talk to the vendor to find out first their place of origin and then how that food is popular within their culture. So I was wondering if there was any any country or any food that, I don't know, you had not seen before and uh, kind of left you puzzled. Yeah, so. I think the the thing that maybe it's a bit simple, but but not so much. Like you know that uh, there are some uh, honey, uh, sorry, some bees that are uh, stingless uh, bees, and they are very um, autochthonous from uh, Latin America, for instance. And then they um, make a very special honey from these bees, and this year. Like I had the chance to try like three or four different of them uh, because uh, some friends of mine actually are uh, beekeepers and they brought the honey uh, with them to, to help us trying it. And it was so different. So it looks like honey. It tastes kinds of like honey, but it, it has so many different flavors. And, uh, and it's also special because they're really trying hard to, uh, to keep these bees uh, alive. Because mm-hmm. they are threatened by, um, for example, the European bees that have been imported to um, to America, but also because of pesticides, of course, and we know that they are uh, they're really putting uh, bees in in danger and and pollinators in general. And so, I see these young beekeepers as local heroes mm-hmm. because they are, their local food system depend on pollinators and so it's so important the role that they have so for me that was uh yeah my my highlight (laughs) (laughs) uh so let me let me kind of backtrack now i want to find out a little bit about your background and i'm actually going to ask you if you don't mind how old are you i'm 28 almost 29 Okay, so you're very young. And um, what is your background? Uh, where did you study and what did you did you study? Yes, so I, I studied uh, my bachelor in Italy in the University of Gastronomic Sciences in uh, Polenzo, which is also very connected with slow food. And this is how I got to know the, the movement. And then I did my master's in food studies in Wageningen in the Netherlands. And it was mm-hmm. a European master, so I I traveled then a bit in, in other European universities, and then I got back to the Netherlands for my my first internship. And then meanwhile, I started to volunteer for the local Slow Food Youth Network because, of course, I was always uh, in touch with the network of Slow Food, and I really wanted to to get involved even if I was traveling. And then in um, 2018. Uh, they started a global office of the Slow Food Youth Network and then they opened a, a position for a global coordinator and I applied it and I started to work. So now mm-hmm. it's almost five years that I've been working with the, with the Slow Food Youth Network. That is fantastic to see how at a young age um, people get uh, involved and connected. Are you based in Bra or is your office somewhere else? So our office is uh, officially in Enschede, which is a, a city in the Netherlands in the border with uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we work mainly remotely and uh, I live in Rotterdam. So okay. I, I mainly work from, from mm-hmm. Rotterdam. 
Uh, so, uh, when we talk about, uh, uh, slow food, obviously, um, I think it starts on many different, uh, levels. The first one is also, um, also from us consumers making, uh, the right, um, uh, purchasing decisions. So, um, if you were to <clears throat> give some recommendations or just uh, how would you educate the regular consumer to, um, make some, you know, right choices that everyone can do. Um, yeah. so starting from small steps, are they, are there certain things that you would, um, recommend to, um, enjoy more sustainable food? Yeah. So first of all, uh, try to buy food from local producers. There are more and more, uh, local markets, for example, with local producers or also platforms that deliver uh, local food to your, to your home. So let's say it's, um, it's getting easier to have access to, to local food. So that would be like a first step. And then eat uh, seasonal food, which obviously also if you buy food from local pr- producers, it's seasonal. Mm-hmm. And uh, try to, to buy as less plastic as possible so so to get these uh foods um unpackaged um or uh, uh, if you go to the supermarket for example bring your own uh, bags also this is uh, really important and uh, also try to eat as much plant-based uh, as possible mm-hmm. uh, so we at slow food we are definitely not against meat consumption because we we believe that there are uh, some uh, meat um, farm uh, meat production that it's uh, actually important as part of an ecosystem as part of an agroecological uh, farming method for example uh, but so we would recommend if you eat meat then really make sure that it comes from a sustainable meat production and potentially also locally produced and also um, not every day so mm-hmm. because it still has a big impact on the environment and mm-hmm. then try to eat as many uh, legumes as possible and also vary vary a lot try different uh, different species um, different varieties of food um, to really promote local biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I totally agree also on the, uh, mainly also on the seasonal food because it looks like in today's society, we are getting accustomed to wanted something 365 days a year, whether, uh, motherland, um, is ready to produce it or if we're imposing, uh, on, uh, certain farmers, like the bigger picture to produce that type of vegetable fruit all year long. Um, so, and, um, um, unfortunately, when that is done, um, the flavor that you would really enjoy uh, of a fruit, so whether it's the berries, tomatoes, figs, wherever you name it, uh, when they're supposed to be in season, it's going to be completely different from the kind of fruit and vegetables that need to be produced um, all year um, around. Um, the taste, but also the, the environmental impact, of mm-hmm. course, because if you have to grow strawberries, when it's not the season of strawberries, you need to mm-hmm. have much more input. Uh, you need to use the greenhouses, for example, you need to use warming systems. So there is a bigger impact or you need to import foods from mm-hmm. other countries, which is also, of course, impacting on the environment. Yes. 
Um, the other thing, though, that I started to notice, and that is kind of the good side, is the involvement of uh, the new generation into cultivating the land. Uh, you know, obviously, agriculture, we might think about agriculture I'm saying in Italy, in some countries, it's still, I say, maybe it was done by the grandparents. And so for anyone that was uh, had property, the new generations will want to go to college and, you know, travel the world and so forth. But uh, there are now new degree programs that uh, allow the young to get, uh, uh, again, back to the land, back to food and using um, high, highly skilled degrees and, and so forth, like the programs that you also have have attended. Can you tell us a little bit about your um your um to uh, the degree the master the the basic degree the bachelor's degree and the master degree. Yeah, of course. So um yeah, my studies they were not so related to agriculture. It was more related to um, so the bachelor in general to the food system and really analytic approach mm-hmm. to food. So yes, we had a course on uh food crops production, for example, but it was not the main focus. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, food philosophy, uh, chemistry of food, uh, mm-hmm. food history, um, a course on beer tasting. So it was really, really broad. And then we had uh, um, study trips in which we really went and visit local producers uh, in different parts of the world and they really learn about how they actually are doing things, but also which one are the problems that they are facing every day and what we could do to to support them. Uh, Whereas in my master's, it was a bit more um, focused on product development and on the scientific parts of the uh, of food. So um, I also like my final research was on sensor analysis and um, I was doing a project on the the aromas of basmati rice and how they change during aging, uh, the aging process. And so, yeah, it was a bit more on the uh, product development and, and science part. Exactly. So it's, yeah, what I, I had meant before is both, you know, seeing now, again, the highly skilled professionals coming with deg- degree pro- uh, programs to uh, handle the food conversation at a completely different level. So you can have the high tech or the knowledge, uh, but then, you know, the the starting point is indeed the uh, the food. So you went to uh when we talk about at what point was the youth network created so again slow food youth network you might hear us refer you as spin <laughs> you guys are spins yourselves yeah spinners <laughs> spinners okay spinners um so tell me a little bit about uh, uh when the movement was created and uh in which region surprisingly uh was mm-hmm. was created yeah, so um, the Slow Food Youth Network was born about 10 years ago in the Netherlands, actually, because um, um, a group of friends, uh, young friends that were part of the uh, of the Slow Food uh, movement, they, um, they wanted to react a bit to the more conservative Slow Food 
because at that point, Brotherhood was a bit more like an, an elitarian uh, movement. Not everywhere in the world, but especially in Europe, it was really associated with people going to fancy dinners and like tasting wines and not so much politically involved, let's say. And whereas this uh, this group of uh, of young people, they really wanted to do something concrete to change, so to to be more uh, activists and um, yeah, to to take the lead uh, of the of the change of the uh, of the European food system in that case. And so they started locally in the Netherlands to uh, create a program which is called the Spin Academy which is still active nowadays. And uh, it's an educational program made by youth for the youth. And when I talk about youth, we mean between 18 to 32 years old. And uh, the idea was really to go and see with the, our own eyes like how the food system looks like. So uh, visiting small producers, big producers, uh, creating uh, spaces for discussion and see how we can really find solutions together with an open mind and with a critical mind. So it's not saying that, okay, you are working for a big corporation, then uh, of course like you are like the, the evil one, but no <laughs> at all. So like let's let's see um, how you're working, what is the problem that you are facing. Let's talk to the small farmer, let's see uh, what is the problem he's facing, let's talk together and let's see how we can find a solution. So that was really the basics. And then uh, by um so with this program, they also managed to finance the first office, which was the, the Dutch uh, Slow Food Youth Network office. Uh, by that time, it was called the Youth Food Movement. And uh, and then after that, the movement uh, grew. And also in other countries, they started to create this uh, local uh, youth network. And then uh, finally, uh, five years ago, we opened uh, an office to coordinate the international network still based in the Netherlands and still working hand in hand with the Dutch local network because, of course, they were the, the pioneers of the youth network, but still um, independent and really focusing on uh, on the, the global youth network. And now we have uh, communities that are just uh, made of youth. Uh, we have about 100 all over the world and also a lot of uh, individuals that are volunteering with the network. But then, of course, we also have uh, slow food communities, which are uh, not only made by youth. They have young people and less young people working together. And then, of course, we um, we also promote that uh, type of relationships because we believe that it's really important to bridge the gap between generations. And then we, we do specific programs with the youth that are part of these broader communities, let's say. Mm -hmm. Do you know by chance if you do have um, groups also here in the U.S.? So is he uh, tends to be more um, European-based? Um, we have also, yeah, we have a, a Spin USA community, uh, which is a bit spread like with different volunteers let's say in, uh, in different uh, parts of the of the US and then they have like a central um community which connects them mm -hmm. 
So I'm assuming that every year or every so often, uh, because some of the projects might take years and not just uh, uh, a few months. Can you tell us some of the topics, some of the causes or campaign, campaigns that um, uh, might be the 2023 uh, theme or some of the things that uh, your organization has already achieved? Yes. Yes. Um... We we have different programs as Slow Food News Network already mentioned the the academy program, but then something that we are also really proud of and that we do every year is a big campaign called the World Disco Soup Day, uh, which focusing focuses on uh, food waste reduction, and um, in during that campaign everyone. Uh, can join so not only communities belonging to slow food or to the slow food network but really everyone that is interested in raising awareness against uh, food waste uh, can join and uh, we always create a free toolkit that uh, people can follow and then uh, easily create their own disco soup and what is the disco soup <laughs> it's actually an event that the, the local volunteers organize in which they collect uh, local foods that otherwise would have been wasted or thrown away. For example, vegetables that are rejected by the market because they look ugly or they, they are not uh, within the standards of the market or that are left uh, on the crops, uh, on the fields like uh, uh, unharvested because uh, it would be more expensive expensive to harvest them uh, due to the uh, fluctuation of the prices of the market uh, rather than uh, yeah exactly like uh, um, harvesting them and so uh, we ask our volunteers to collect all these foods and to make a soup that's why it's called the, the disco soup day and then um, we always put music it's like a, a real party and you can make it in a public space or in a private space and uh, invite uh, participants to come. It uh, It is supposed to be a free event mm-hmm. uh, because really the goal is to raise awareness as much as possible. And uh, in the past editions, we raised like more than 50,000 uh, tons um, of uh, food. So we, we saved it from uh, being wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I'm from Rome. I'm aware of uh, there is an organization is called Ray Food G's, Ray Food G's. Uh, they're based in Rome and uh, right outside the market I was mentioning before. On Saturdays, they collect uh, the food that is not being sold. Um, it's been given by the different vendors. And I have a very multi-ethnic community um, that uh, comes in at four o'clock and then everyone um, can help themselves to wherever they, they like. So this is uh, going on here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We have a wonderful organization. It's called 412 Rescue Food. Uh, so they have now a very good network of uh, organizations that will call up and it could be from even companies having in corporate meetings and having uh, food left over to supermarkets and just a lot of, you know, just regular organizations that call in, the volunteers go and collect the food. And then they do have kitchens where some of these foods are reassembled and then given out uh, back to uh, to the community. Um, there are also some other businesses, um, you know, obviously these are the food is given for free, uh, but others have seen that there are 
there is awareness uh, uh, from a network of different um, businesses that create uh, some sort of surprise packages at a very reduced uh, rate um, that families can, um, you know, they can choose the, the business that they would normally go to and uh, pay wherever is the little amount is much lower than the, the, the regular price of the items. And uh, at the end of the day, they they can go and collect. And it's usually pretty big. Um, it's almost like Christmas Day every day. You never know what is going to be in the bag. But it's, you know, um, businesses are being aware of um, alternative ways to um, uh, to not dispose of the food, but making sure that it doesn't go into the trash, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, now, Valentina, you have a wonderful podcast. It's the Sphin uh, podcast. Uh, when did you start that? Thanks for the compliment. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we started actually in, uh, in 2020. So uh, just before the pandemic, <laughs> we released our first episode. And actually, in the very beginning, it was more uh, an experiment. So I was uh, traveling in Mexico by that time. And then um, I had a chance to meet like very special uh, local uh, communities and I said okay let's uh, record interviews with them and then from there I started to to publish the first episode and then it grew it grew it grew and now it's uh yeah it's already two years that it's um uh, full of content with uh with many episodes and uh it's mainly in English uh we have also some episodes in uh in Italian and in Spanish uh, they they are always translated also in in English, and um, it really touches different um, aspects of the food system. And uh, I always try to give the priority um, to youth, of course, because we're the the slow food network. Uh, so you can listen to voices of uh, young producers, and uh, we have a small series of some uh, indigenous youth that are uh, telling traditional stories connected to their local food culture and I think yeah it, it's very special because you don't really have the chance of listening to these people in like a everyday life mm-hmm. so it's um yeah we're we're really proud of that and uh, now we are gonna release uh, some episodes uh, which we recorded at Terra Madre the event yes. that we were mentioning mm-hmm. before so mm-hmm. so we took chance of having a uh, we did our delegate there and we recorded live and um yeah so it's uh it's growing yeah the last uh the last two episodes i listened to one was i think at uh, terra madre there was a a, a girl from uh, the united states who actually has studied in in italy so she was talking about her shift in I guess approach and awareness as she came to Italy and started to get uh, more educated about um, sustainability and the system and and so forth. And then obviously the uh, episode in Italian with uh, Carlo Pitrilli mm-hmm. and that you had a chance to interview was it the first time that you actually um, dealt with him kind of uh, in person or is it a figure that you uh, see uh, often? Yeah, so since I, I studied at the University of Gastronomic Sciences, I already met him uh, quite sometimes because he, like, he, he, his office is there and also he's really in, in contact with the students. And then also working for the Slow Foodies Network, of course, like you, you have 
the chance of uh, of working uh, with him and uh, yeah and now also with the the new board of uh, directors of Slowfoot, and um, you know that from this year we we have a new president of Slowfoot, so it's not yes. Kalin anymore. So he he's still, of course, that the founder is still uh, have really really active in the movement. But now we have also an amazing uh, young president from uh, Uganda, Eddie Mukivi, mm-hmm. who has also a very beautiful story because he is uh, an agronomist uh, and uh, a local farmer and he had uh, experience first by um, working for like a conventional agriculture and then he realized that that's not the way that it should be and then he, he really um, got a passionate for uh, agroecology and uh, and then he scaled up until becoming the, the new president of Slow Food. And uh, being uh, myself like uh, part of the Slow Food Network and seeing such a young president uh, leading the movement of Slow Food, I think it's, uh, it's a very, very uh, positive thing. So to give like this um, new generation also taking the, the lead uh, of the movement. Um, anything that you, um, I think that was, uh, was indeed the last issue of the newsletter that, uh, indeed got me to, uh, contact, um, your organization. And I specifically asked, I wanted to have representative of the new youth network because again, we, um, uh, not only it's refreshing to, to see, um, everyone taking at heart, uh, wanted to make a difference. Uh, but the earlier we, um, sprinkled the seeds, no pun intended, um, the better they uh, are going to be the rewards. Um, any, any last message or whether it was something that you heard from Carlo Petrilli or anything that you would like to share as kind of your last message to our audience? Mm, yeah, I think it's important to be aware that everyone can make a change. So don't be afraid if it's just uh, you starting to uh, eat more plant-based, to buy more local foods or all the, the things that we said before, uh, or yeah, starting to be active for your uh, local food system. But like these small steps are really making the difference and also try to involve uh, involve your community, involve the people that are around you. And already by seeing that you are doing something different, they will look at you and they will start to, to make a change. And um, even if uh, these uh, days, they don't look so positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a, a war going on. We have an energy crisis. Uh, we have uh, started. We are starting to have a scarcity of food, or uh, the food cost is raising. So it looks that it's not really going to the right direction. But still, I believe that it's also thanks to this moment uh, of crisis that we can uh, take the chance and really change the system mm-hmm. to to the other way. So. Uh, let's be positive and let's start to uh, go ourselves towards the right direction. Yes, and I think also one of the the, the messages also Carlo had um, uh, when analyzing where we're at is like uh, going back to normality. First of all, would be like a false hope, but uh, the, yeah. the moment of crisis, as you just said, uh, could be indeed the trigger 
triggering factor for changes, bigger changes, new things. So definitely a brighter, a brighter future. Well, uh, Valentina, you've been so, so kind. Uh, I know that you are traveling. You're in a different time zone to spend this half hour with us. Um, if people want to get involved, uh, is there, um, uh, what would be the first step to go online and trying to find a slow food uh, youth network or? Uh, yes. So they can follow us on social media. We're there on uh, Facebook and Instagram. It's a slow food youth network, like all together. Otherwise, you can also get in touch with us at hello at slowfoodyouthnetwork.org. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, also if you're interested to to join a local community, uh, well, first you can look at our website, www.slowfoodusenetwork.org, and there you can see on the map where we already have communities, so you can uh, get in touch directly with them and join them. Or if you don't see your uh, area in the map, you can always get in touch with us, and then we will uh, make sure that you get involved, uh, either as an individual or if you want to start your own community, you're, of mm-hmm. course, very welcome to do so, and we will support you uh, the best that we can okay well thank you very much uh safe thanks travel. to you <laughs> and i'll mm-hmm. talk to you soon and ciao 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 thank you so much good luck with the program well welcome to the program i hope you enjoyed our interview with valentina gritti the director of the slow food youth network and uh, to complete our episode today i um came across a, an article in a magazine that talks about a pen pal relationship between a lady here in the U.S. and her friend in Italy. I have asked my friend Kathy to read it for us, so I hope you enjoy the story. An essay published in the June 2022 issue of Good Housekeeping magazine by Sharon Waldrop entitled, She Was One of My Closest Friends, But We Never Met discusses the relationship between a woman and her pen pal and the bond shared between them for approximately 40 years. My friendship with Giovanna started in 1982 when I was 20 by means of an advertisement from a company called International Pen Friends. For a nominal fee paid by check or money order, along with the completion of a brief survey, a would-be correspondent was matched with a like-minded individual from their country of choice. I gravitated toward having a pen pal from Italy. My father's grandparents and their eight children had traveled across the Atlantic from Calabria, Italy, to Ellis Island in 1924. The family eventually settled in Blue Island, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. About a month after putting a stamp on my international pen friend's envelope, I received in the mail Giovanna's name and address, as well as her completed questionnaire. My grandfather's birth name was Giovanni, so I felt connected to her immediately. She was also 20, and we both lived with our parents and planned to do so until marriage. Her best friend and I shared the same birth date. I knew this meant I would always receive a timely birthday card. I did. Giovanna was a linguistics major, fluent in French, Spanish, German, and English. Corresponding with me would help her English writing skills, she said, but her knowledge of the language seemed perfect to me, though it tended toward the British version. She went on holiday instead of vacation and attended university instead of a university. 
Her Christmas dinner was accompanied by an antipasto platter of olives, Genoa salami, capicola, prosciutto, and a fine panettone. Back in the 80s and 90s, it took what seemed like an eternity for mail to travel overseas. Our letters were few and far between. We averaged about four per year. And I learned at least one thing about Italy in each one. I envied the access Giovanna had to different cultures. My mini vacations were quick trips to Las Vegas or Arizona. Hers were to nearby Vienna, Switzerland, France, or England. I have dozens of postcards sent to me from different countries, whereas the ones I sent her were just from places in the U.S. Giovanna's education was very important to her. On more than one occasion, she spent months in Germany to master the language. Though her permanent residence was with her parents, she shared a flat with two schoolmates in her home city of Turin when her university was in session. She loved fashion and sent me clips of the latest styles in Italy. She talked often about the carnivals with masks. And I remember a picture of Pulcinella and Arlequino once sailing out of the envelope as I opened a letter. I have fond memories of everything about the 80s, and Giovanna was a big part of it. We were both music fans. I was envious that she saw the Rolling Stones in July 1982. But that was okay because I saw Bruce Springsteen in Los Angeles a couple of years later. In 1983, we wrote about our love of Dallas, Dynasty, and Flamingo Road on television. She did not laugh at the Gunny Sacks bridesmaid dresses with the puffy sleeves and the pictures from my 1984 wedding. Despite our living on different sides of the world from each other, our common interests were uncanny. I have the feeling that even if we had not turned to international pen friends for a pen pal, our paths would have crossed elsewhere. Though we had a lot in common, our lives were also very different. Giovanna grew up in the country and continued to live there. I lived in a big city near Los Angeles. She married once and never moved after the nuptials. I walked down the aisle twice and lived in 10 houses in seven cities, including three cross-country moves. She had one child, a daughter. I had four, three girls and a boy. Giovanna was fascinated with my life, which was so different from hers, and was always asking questions. She cared, wanting to keep up with the news about my growing family. I had an interest in her life and career as a linguistics professor, and I took a break from family life to read each of her letters as soon as it arrived. Decades later, I still felt the same excitement inside as I had when that first letter had come. We often wrote about meeting someday. When I announced that I had won money at a blackjack table in Las Vegas, she kiddingly said, well, perhaps the money would be put to good use toward a second honeymoon in Italy. She enticed me by saying she would make the spaghetti al pomodoro recipe with fresh Roma tomatoes that she had shared with me in a past letter. It was on my bucket list to visit my family's birthplace in Italy, and meeting Giovanna while there would be the highlight. She couldn't wait to show me around. I knew we would meet someday. 
Giovanna did not send photos as often as I did, but she sent occasional gifts. I still have a small framed picture from Torin hanging on the wall in my bedroom, of which I have had many since it arrived. I even received an authentic panettone, knowing that the price of the postage was more than that of the treat itself. The few photos I received from Giovanna include one from when she started university, a wedding picture, and several of her daughter. Her daughter was two when my son was born, and I remember Giovanna writing to me that her daughter loved seeing pictures of baby Ian and asked to look at him daily. Our handwritten letters across the ocean talking about our babies and toddlers suddenly became emails proudly announcing college graduations. How would this happen so fast? One thing I didn't realize we had in common was heart issues. My mother died of heart disease in her mid-60s, and my cholesterol soared when I became premenopausal. I also have atrial fibrillation, a type of irregular heartbeat. I feel like a cardiac time bomb, afraid I'll drop dead at a moment's notice. I never corresponded with Giovanna's daughter. I remember when she was born, knew her name, and had received a few pictures. When I saw her name in my email inbox on Christmas Eve in 2020, I knew there was only one reason she would write to me in response to the Christmas card I had sent. Is Giovanna hurt, I wondered? Why isn't she writing to me herself? This can't be good. Giovanna's daughter's note said, It is with deep sadness that I write to inform you that my mother suddenly passed away on August 27. She was heading to a meeting with her colleagues and had a heart attack. Thank you for your wishes. My father and I wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. The knot in my throat took my breath away. I, I was the one whose heart was supposed to suddenly cease beating. I sorted through my box of letters from Giovanna, took out her handwritten recipe for spaghetti al pomodoro, and made it for dinner that evening. But first, I wrote back to her daughter and told her that her English was perfect, just as her mother's had been. There are people in our lives who, who we do not see or communicate with daily, but who are an irreplaceable part of us. Giovanna was one of them for me. I know that if we had met in person after almost four decades of letters, cards, and emails, there would have been neither moments of silence nor time needed to become acquainted. We were already close friends, though we never laid eyes on each other. I was sad about her death, of course. I, I still am. I won't be able to hug Giovanna or to kiss her on both cheeks as is customary in Italy, but I relish the memory of her. We were lucky to have each other. And the best part, she may be gone, but I will always have her letters. It's a beautiful story. Um flipping through a magazine that maybe I would uh, pull out a recipe or some gardening tips. I was actually surprised to find it. And I thought it would be a perfect celebration to friendship. Um, I personally had the experience of having a pen pal with my broken English. And I still remember going to the post office uh, to mail the letters in this uh, paper thin, like air mail. 
And the girl was from uh, Elia City. I don't know how she managed to go through my own letters. <laughs> but I think uh, there are, th- those are um, little experiences that shape us. And the earlier um, kids or ourselves get exposed to another world, um, maybe that's why I love to travel so much. And I'm a people person. Um, because I always, um, uh, always engage in wanting to know more about the individuals. So, uh, Kathy, you read the story beautifully and I thank you very much for, for this. How did you feel reading it? It can get pretty emotional. Yes. Yes. I certainly could feel the connection between Sharon and Giovanna, uh, despite not ever having met in person. Uh, one could sense that that connection, that, that bond, that bond mm-hmm. between the two of them. Yes. And uh, so it's, it's really two pages long, but there are so many emotions that uh, made it so special. And I just wanted to bring it to the program to share with all of you. I hope you enjoy it as well. Well, unfortunately, our hour is up. Il Big Ben ha detto stop. It's time for us to say arrivederci e alla prossima. We want to thank you for tuning into the program. If you have any questions or comments or if you have any travel topics you would like us to address, please contact us at the Italian Radio Hour at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember, if you or any of your family and friends have missed a prior episode or would like to listen to this episode again, please visit our website at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org and click on the Italian Radio Hour tab. We would like to thank our guest Valentina Gritti, our sponsors Istituto Mondo Italiano, La Prima Espresso and Alla Boara for the music. If you're not living in the Pittsburgh area or you might be out of town, remember you can catch us streaming live at khbradio.com every Thursday at 5 p.m. And be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at Italian Radio Hour. Until next time, alla prossima, ciao ciao!